to Meet the PAs podcast. Hear the experiences of seasoned PAs, up and coming development of policy from industry leaders, and the exploration of those new to the career. Interviews done with a Canadian twist at Maple Syrup. Welcome back to Meet the PAs podcast. Rachel and I are here today with Christine Burroughs. She's the assistant dean of the McMaster PA program. And she was also one of the first graduates of the McMaster PA program in 2010. So welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Why don't we get started by just talking about how you got started in the PA program or how you got started as PA, what brought you to have an interest in it, especially considering that you were part of the first class, it wasn't something that was well known, and you were really taking a bit of a risk on a profession that was not well established. So I was actually working out of the country in the South Pacific and had a lot of exposure with U.S. trained PAs. At the time, I was sort of undecided about whether to pursue medicine or veterinary medicine. And as I was working there, I thought this was sort of a neat fit where I could practice in medicine without having to go back to school for such an extended period of time. I liked that the PAs that were there had a really neat mix of autonomy. And at the end of the day, the responsibility was handed back to someone else and they had a nice work-life balance. And through that, I thought I would apply to the U.S. programs because there was nothing yet in Canada. And in the middle of that process, the timing was just perfect. And both McMaster and Manitoba had announced the launch of the first Canadian PA program. So it just made sense to move home. Okay. What were you doing in the South Pacific? I was working as a public health epidemiologist. Mm -hmm. And what was the, your experience there? How's the health system there in comparison to here? What are the big challenges? Uh, so lots of challenges around resources. And, you know, it's interesting, I think, when you work in countries that are different than your own, it's hard not to compare. And you arrive sort of with a preconceived notion of what work, runs better and what works better in your own country. But it doesn't take long to recognize that each culture has their own way of doing things. And there's actually a pretty reciprocal learning that happens on both ends in terms of how they provide health care. Some of the things that were quite fascinating, uh, you know, their infection prevention and control was sometimes below the standards here. But in other ways, you know, when someone was terminally ill, the entire family was in the room sleeping on the floor, like they surround the person that's ill. And that's just very different here where people are in isolation. Um, and there's lots of restrictions on visitors. So lots of pros and cons definitely about each system that you respect and recognize in those roles. So you have been working clinically for the last almost decade now here in Canada. What areas do you work in? So I started out after PA school working uh, full-time in internal medicine and shortly after also picked up a part-time role in clinical dermatology. Unfortunately, with the end of the pilot project funding and the Career Start grants back in 2015, I was terminated from my hospital position but continued to work part-time in clinical dermatology uh, and that time made a decision to go back and do some research around the PA profession, uh, mostly to sort of fill up that time while I while I look for more clinical work. Hmm. And uh, did you have discussions? Like, like how how did that end of that job happen? Was there discussions with the with the board, with the hospital, and trying to find funding for you? Uh, so unfortunately, there were actually three of us terminated at the same time. I think there are a few factors at play. One, uh, it was three female PAs, and we were all uh, expecting babies about 10 weeks apart. Mm -hmm. So it meant a lot of mat leaves to try and cover at the same time, which was definitely a complicating factor with you know PAs providing fairly extensive, extensive coverage on a ward. 
I think a second part to that was we knew the ministry funding was coming to an end and we had such a division in our roles between the physicians really working closely with us and being our biggest advocates, but they didn't contribute to our salaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the hospital decided that it would be cheaper uh, as a facility to move towards or as an organization to move towards uh, a hospitalist role because the hospitalists could bill OHIP and the PA salaries would no longer have to come out of the global budget. So um, just lots of factors that sort of unfortunately lined up at the right time, well, wrong time for us, probably the right time for the hospital that allowed them to terminate the three contracts. So this is unfortunately not a unique Absolutely. thing that happens, particularly in Ontario. How have you guided and mentored other PAs through that type of system? And how would you recommend they walk into those meetings when a hospital is, you know, their bottom line is not necessarily looked at in the same vision as ours? Well, it's interesting, you know, we get a lot of questions, especially as a program administrator about, you know, should I take this role that's not career start grant or do I take a chance at this position? And I, you know, I think there are a few warning signs looking back that I wish I'd recognized that I think we are better now as a profession um, understanding, you know, when you walk into an employer and they have really no idea what your role is going to be and how you're going to be used, that's a bit of a red flag. When at those interviews, you know, they can sort of explain how you're going to be funded for one year, but it doesn't seem like there's been too much thought given to how things go beyond. Again, a bit of a red flag. And certainly for our students, if they have an option, you know, the career start grants are absolutely integral to getting our PAs out in the province and to areas where I think clinically it would be difficult to integrate a PA without the funding. On the flip side, I think for PAs that are fortunate enough to have a PA employer or, you know, a physician employer rather, or an organization that's figured out how to get them employed with their own funding, that's likely to be more sustainable. Someone's personally investing in that role, as opposed to a big organization that you're just one of hundreds of employees that might be hired that year. The the impetus to make you happy and keep you in that role is a bit different. Mm, for sure. So going back to when you first started in internal medicine, did you feel like you got to practice to your full scope? And how did that change over the time you were there? Well, certainly in internal medicine, I think any sites and I think any of us that were in the first group of graduates, when we weren't really sure of our role, we didn't have PA mentors in the community to show us what that role looked like in our positions. Um, There was a lot of, uh, the learning curve was massive. So, um, I mean, my scope shouldn't have been as full as it needed to be at the beginning because I didn't have the skill set or the knowledge base or the confidence yet to recognize sort of what that skill set was. I think after about the six-month mark um, into that first year, then it becomes clear what you can contribute. You know your way around the hospital. You know each of your supervising physicians and the staff that you work with. Um, Once those things start falling into place, you're acquiring knowledge that you don't even realize you're learning. Mm -hmm. It's sort of being in the environment and, and repeating the same thing, seeing the same types of patients. So that scope of practice um, definitely evolves over time. And I think that's pretty consistent for most PAs in any position. And I think the second part to that was really in terms of being functioning the full scope of practice. I mean, no one really knew. I didn't have five other internal medicine PAs to call and ask what they were doing. I feel like we were able to function in a way that benefited patients. It benefited the staff. It was a benefit to the physicians we were working under and really knew our way around in the hospital. We did not have, we wrote medical directives. They were never approved uh, while we were there, Um, but they really didn't limit us that much. You just get pretty creative in finding ways around it uh, and functioning in a safe way. Um, 
And yeah, it, it evolved as time went on. And certainly I think that efficiency with or with those medical directives, we were still able to accomplish a lot on a daily basis. Hmm. For sure. And then you switched entirely unexpectedly to a teaching and more of a non-clinical role. So although it was unexpected, I imagine your interest in PA education has really bloomed over that time. And could you describe how that shift was going from a very clinical position to a more non-clinical position and um, how you have adjusted and changed your vision? Yeah, so I don't think it was totally unexpected. I really had, I had stayed involved with the PA program even after graduation. I would come back and do large group sessions Mm -hmm. or things that I thought, you know, where I had seen gaps in our curriculum being in the first year and along with many of my classmates that did the same. I knew when I lost my job that I needed a backup plan. And that was sort of the mm-hmm. reason behind going back to school, just to make sure I had something else. And knowing that we needed research about the PA role, I thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity to sort of pursue graduate work and do research around the role in the province, especially with my own personal experience of what it's mm-hmm. like losing job around that funding when you know you're demonstrating uh, good value to your employer. And really the thought was, you know, if I pursued additional teaching, maybe at some point, and down the line, it would be great to run a PA program. Have always had an interest in health professional education. Uh, it's just the timing was, uh, you know, I guess fortunate for me in the way that things fell into place. And I've ended up doing both at the same time. So certainly, I don't think it was unexpected. It's more that, you know, it's hard. It's hard balancing. I miss clinical work and seeing patients. There's a lot of value in seeing patients. And sometimes that same value is a little bit harder in those administrative roles when you're juggling multiple stakeholders and multiple needs between students and faculty and outward influence. That juggle is just very different than what clinical work is like, um, but has its you know great advantages. And um, yeah, ultimately, I think for any of us in these roles, finding a balance between clinical work where you see patients and, and can be responsive to the needs of the healthcare system balanced with mm-hmm. sort of, you know, bringing, bringing things in that you think graduates need and that your students need is a neat opportunity to balance both. Okay. So interesting. Okay. So I changed my words. It wasn't <laughs> unexpected. It was, it was a long time coming. Maybe even you always kept your foot in the door of that educational side. And what do you feel is the, you and the program feel is the ideal Mac student? We have a lot of people considering entering the PA profession who listen to the podcast. So if you could describe what that ideal. Absolutely. Is. Well, I like to think that it isn't actually program specific. I know that, you know, between Manitoba and the University of Toronto consortium and McMaster, the way we deliver our t- curriculum is very different, but the reality is your clerkship rotations, your clinical rotations are the same regardless of what program you're coming from. And I think in that first year, although we all deliver our materials in different ways, it's the same person that makes a great PA. So being personable, having good communication skills, being happy to advocate for your patient, knowing your barriers, like knowing your limitations to say this is, you know, I'm not comfortable in this situation or this is beyond my scope or my level of knowledge or my competencies and being comfortable owning that and taking charge to either get the knowledge that you need to do it or seeking help when when it's required are all important parts. And I would like, I feel like I would strictly support that through any program and not just McMaster or, mm-hmm. you know, that I think the same qualities make a good PA and that's sort of more important than what would make an ideal candidate at a specific university. Great. So for those who are considering applying in the future, is there anything they should be doing right now that would help prepare them best for that education? 
No, I mean, these programs are getting increasingly more competitive. It's hard if there isn't, you know, it's it's hard uh, with different admission standards everywhere to sort of unify what that would look like. I certainly think if you have a strong sense of who you are and you are yourself in your interviews and your interview process and you are honest about your interest in the profession, that's going to get you a lot further than trying to check the boxes and mm. get the perfect volunteer hours to do those things. I mean, certainly having a health science background, certainly coming from somewhere where you have a bit of patient experience or life experience, travel, whatever it might be, so that you can anticipate those types of questions that are going to challenge you on what happens when these things you know, may not be as stable or funding is a challenge. I think those life experiences will make it easier for you to come up with the answers, but it's not to say that people without that experience can't be fantastic PAs and still get into programs. So is it the interview process that you find students struggle with in, in terms of getting acceptance or is that the part that students tend to ask questions about and trying to figure out that? Well, I certainly think it's probably the most intimidating part of the process mm-hmm. because you're one-on-one with, you know, going through a fairly stressful uh, interview process uh, as you rotate through the multiple mini interviews. So I will just add that I think, you know, each each program has sort of a certain way that they combine scores. If there's a supplementary application, if you have to provide reference letters, if you need a GPA cutoff, that sort of magic formula, I think, for all of us is always under consideration, whether you're a medical school, whether you're, doesn't matter who you are. I think that so your supplementary application, the multiple mini interviews and your GPA, that ratio that you need, you know, you need a strong GPA to get in. You need to have a strong supplementary application and you need to have a strong interview. And any any faltering in any of those three categories is going to make you not rank as high as someone who achieves easily within those three categories. Of course. No, and that makes sense. And the competition is actually been increasing, right? Because the number of applicants to each of the programs across the country has been increasing. Is, is increasing. And the number of students accepted is not, right? Exactly. The mm-hmm. class sizes are staying fairly, they've sort of plateaued and stayed very stable. The number of applicants continues to increase. So you and I graduated together in 2010, but uh, you have been so heavily involved in the program. What big changes have you seen? Yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly those of us that are involved in faculty that graduated from the first class recognize, you know, the amount of work and effort that went into creating the program and getting it up and running in such a short period of time. I think one of the neat things about the McMaster program is there's so much feedback that comes from our faculty and our graduates and the practicing PAs in the community that allow us to continually add and change and adapt to, you know, changes in healthcare, changes to funding, uh, changes to how we deliver knowledge. Even problem-based learning that McMaster is known for, you know, PBL, 30 years ago, people didn't have computers. They weren't Googling items. They had to go to the library and look things up and meet in person. And all of that's changing. And I think we have to always be responsive and adapt to the technology that we have, the way that we learn information, the way that students share information. All of those things have changed. So certainly bringing in, you know, the use of YouTube and videos and watching patients in real life recording our clinical scenarios, those sorts of things uh, have all changed. Certainly the content that's been added to the curriculum has dramatically increased. So, you know, Rachel, I remember us arguing about needing an EKG session to read an EKG and facing not not resistance, but no one was certainly jumping on exposing us to that. And now that's just a given part of the program. And we have excellent PAs working in cardiac ICU that are able to come and walk students through that. Uh, I think that has really provided a lot of value to the students, especially learning from PAs who are doing this daily in their roles has been uh, 
very rewarding to watch sort of that development and, and that network continue to expand. And what do you really hope to see in the upcoming years as, with the MAC program? Uh, well, certainly for McMaster, I think uh, personally, as the U.S. moves towards all of its programs being a master's program at some at some point in time, there needs to be a decision made in Canada about how we align ourselves with that. I think that'll depend, obviously, on whatever there's if you know if a reciprocal agreement ever happens between Canada and the U.S. to allow Canadian PAs to practice down there. I think as a province, we need to be very careful about how we're funding our PAs, how they're being reimbursed in their models, how we're supporting them so that we don't graduate students in Ontario that are leaving the province because of better opportunities elsewhere. And I'm very conscious of that and totally understand why that movement is occurring. I think, too, at the program, ultimately, having a robust staff of PAs, we need our physicians. They are absolutely involved and integral to our program and provide great oversight, great tutoring, great clinical skills teaching. Uh, But having that proper skills mix with our practicing PAs and supervising physicians is really important to me. Um, Ultimately, I have to say that I would like there to be acceptance in the province where we know our PAs are also teaching other medical learners, not just PAs. And sometimes yeah. there's a bit of resistance around that, but it uh, in the U.S., we know that those models work very well, that PAs are expected to do a lot of teaching and mentorship as part of their clinical work and are phenomenal clinical teachers and instructors in the community. And I think Ontario especially is missing out on that opportunity as all programs, medicine, PA, uh, nursing, midwifery, we're all struggling to find appropriate clinical rotations. We need to make use of anybody that has uh, an interest in patient care that has the skill set to pass down to others. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about your PhD projects. You have started your PhD project. You're in the works, and mm-hmm. what is your topic? So I am looking at barriers and facilitators of PA integration in Ontario, specifically focusing on case studies within family medicine, internal medicine, general surgery, and emergency medicine. Just uh, it would have been great to get down to the sort of specialty and subspecialty level, but for the sake of time and really trying to pull together sort of cohesive issues within each of those settings, it was easier to sort of focus on the big, sort of the big ones, the big employers. We know there are lots of barriers and facilitators that are equal amongst all groups mm-hmm. uh, in terms of challenges around funding, you know, competition and role overlap with nurse practitioners, uh, salary disparity, those sorts of things that are sort of even throughout all four of those settings but certainly some that are specific just to family medicine or community-based PAs and things that are specific just to hospital-based PAs. Mm-hmm. So trying to really tease all of those out and document them and get them published in a way that's helpful to employers, that's helpful to practicing PAs. Um, and because there's so little research in Ontario to really just set up a foundation for future studies going forward. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, we really need it, right? And I think we need more solid uh, research on the PAs that we have out there, like you're saying. And if we have your yours out there, it puts that, like you said, the foundation, it puts that there. It might encourage other PAs to initiate a project wherever they're at. And the more we have, meta-analysis can be done after that once we have so many put together and we can really make a name for ourselves here. Absolutely. And I think, you know, on the research side, there are PAs all over Ontario and Canada that are doing excellent Mm -hmm. research. It's just hard if you're juggling full, you know, I have the advantage of not juggling full time, even though I really miss it, clinical work that provides some advantages. I'm also well aligned with the faculty that can support my research. But if you're coming from a hospital setting, trying to collect your own data and your own variables, I think as a profession, you need to do a better job of connecting those that do have the resources and the time to help process that data and get the information out there. 
And it's hard even with my own project. Like I really was hoping to get down to, you know, doing an economic analysis of funding models and laying that stuff out. But the reality is the finances and the stream of funding is so complicated in Ontario that it's not, that's beyond someone's graduate work. Like that's a, that's, you know, Mm. it needs a committee of people to look at that and to map it out and to talk to the, you know, economists and the human health resource planners um, and really find a way to strategically present that to government as opposed to trying to do it individually as, as part of thesis work. No, you can't. I can't even fathom. I can't even wrap my brain around the pain that it has when I think about the project that that is, but we need it at some point. Yeah. And how much longer do you have? Are you hoping to have your project (laughs) published? I will go on the record and say my goal is to try and finish by uh, summer next year. So hopefully by Kappa 2019, I will have my project done. There, I'll say it out loud tonight. I'm now you, myself to now it. you're committed to it. And it's for, <laughs> way, to, way to go, Rachel, for on the spot. Yeah. And it's also perfect timing then too Verbal because contract. the yeah. <laughs> then, uh, Kappa conference next year is in Ontario. So you'll have more of an Ontario audience yes. there too. Yes, and can personally thank all the people that have participated in my study because without PAs coming forward and answering uh, answering my questions about their roles and encouraging their supervising physicians to participate, we obviously would have no research in the province. So okay. grateful yeah. for that. We kind of wrap things up. I mean, we've talked about some good things. We've always also talked about a lot of challenges that this profession and you personally are faced, have faced and are facing in Ontario and throughout Canada. but Overall, we should end on a more happy note. So your hopes and uh, you are very hopeful for this profession moving forward and looking ahead. And where do you think this, you know, can you even imagine where this is going to be in 10 years? And what, what are your hopes for that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I would say to everybody, there are days, it doesn't matter what job you're in. It doesn't matter what degree you're graduating with. There are going to be challenges faced in any profession considering how, you know, I think for many people, it feels like we haven't come that far. We're still, you know, arguing over regulation or, you know, still pushing for regulation. We're still trying to sort out our funding. The reality is we have physician support. Mm -hmm. Uh, The patient pushback has been nothing. I mean, patients have fully accepted. They're Mm -hmm. happy to be seen by PAs. And I think it's just appreciating, you know, we have a healthcare system that is a massive, massive organization with so many different needs and so many different stakeholders. And the reality is um, we are moving slowly. The growth still happens. We have successful, amazing, engaged students that are getting into our programs, that are graduating, that are coming behind us and continuing to push the profession to set higher standards, to really show people what knowledge and competencies PAs can have and what they can add to the system. And I think we just, as an entire profession in Ontario and across Canada, just need to be patient sometimes and recognize the frustrations I also think that each PA needs to find, you know, all of us are here because we enjoy clinical work. And the reality is you can't be an expert on regulation and funding and running a program and trying to juggle your clinical work and have a family life. At some point, one of those things has to go. And I think so if each PA can sort of find one area that really appeals to them, whether it's advocacy, whether it's patient engagement at their site, whether it's arguing or plotting out funding models whether it's developing research programs, it's contribution, you know, coming back to contribute to teaching, find an area that interests you on top of your clinical work and focus your energy there as opposed to many of us. And maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I just get caught up on feeling like I don't always have a pulse, you know, mm-hmm. a feel of the pulse everywhere. And sometimes it's hard 
but recognizing if you put, you know, more of your energy into one area, you can hopefully make a difference and push things forward and gain some momentum there rather than spreading yourself over many different areas. That's great. Very well said. We appreciate you joining us so much on the podcast. We'll see you next time on the next episode, everyone. Thank you. Meet the PA's podcast is sponsored by pahelpers.ca, where you can find all your Canadian exam prep needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit us at mtppodcast.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we would love your feedback.